Hey, Lighthouse Niagara family, this is Pastor Joel Sloss. I hope that the message you received today blesses you so, so much. Good morning, Lighthouse Church family. It is so good to be here uh, this morning and able to speak once again uh, something that we haven't been able to share in, which is speaking in front of a live congregation, which is incredible. Um, And I am so blessed to be able to share with you, even if it can't be Uh, in person. We can only have 10 right now, but I'm still able to share with you, and I'm sure you are are blessed to be joining us this morning, and uh, I know it is such an incredible opportunity to share in front of believers that we can gather even during this time. Uh, And and for those of you who are live, uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, But for those who are are joining us at a later time, uh, either on our YouTube channel or on our website, I do also want to welcome you and thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we, we love you, and we are doing all of this because uh, we still hope that we might be able to share with you the truth and worship of our Lord, uh, even during these, these difficult, unprecedented, trying times. Uh, it sounds like we've been saying that for, for uh, a decade now, but uh, we know that this is, this is still uh, something we're, we're dealing with and sorting through, and so while I'm on the, uh, the, the subject of thanking people, I, I do, I want to give a huge shout out to our worship team, to our media team, Um, and I want to give some special appreciation for all the hard work that that goes into this. Uh, Many of you don't get to see the behind the scenes, the production that goes into this, Uh, but I do, I want to give a special appreciation to to many individuals. I want to thank Nathan Dakin and Matt Spadzinski for all of the time that they've put in setting up cameras and and, uh, setting up live streams and, and putting in all of this work uh, that many people don't get to see, but but it's the reason that you and I are able to join together this morning live. And I also I want to thank Rochelle and Tyler, our incredible worship directors, uh, and everything that you guys do. Our entire worship team, the amount of sacrifice that you guys put in, uh, time and effort. It's the reason that we are still able to do kingdom work in the midst of all of this. And if there was a congregation live here with me, I would ask you all to give them a big hand. Uh, but instead for the band and the members here today, I'm the, I'm the only one here who can, who can give you uh, a round of applause. So I just want to give you guys some major appreciation. I, I am so blessed by, by everything that you guys do. You see, I, I have become so proud of the church family that I have gotten to become a part of over the past 10 months. The very many ways that I see our pastors, our ministry directors, those who are part of our ministry teams, and even those who aren't involved directly with, with uh, formal ministry in any capacity, the way that I see each of you take upon yourselves uh, the task at hand and you continually readily bless others in times where, where others are in need. When you feel prompted, you each jump to the opportunity to provide support be it emotionally, financially, spiritually, or physically. Believe me, I have seen each of these things in in countless ways, uh, but particularly physically. (laughs) Because never in my life have I done so many moves as I have in the span of the time that I have been here. Uh, And I see the men and women of our church uh, continually join us day after day and, and month after month for, for these moves where we get the opportunity to help our brothers and sisters in time uh, where they, they need to move themselves physically from one place to another. It can be a challenging thing to do, and it's something that we get the opportunity to bless one another with, and I'm so blessed by it. Uh, until the day of the move comes, and, and Pastor Dave sees this heavy 
oak dresser in the master bedroom on the third floor. And then he begins to, to look around and, and ask where the young bucks are, which is Pastor Dave's new way of, of saying that he, he's looking for the new youth and young adult pastors so that they can, they can move that heavy oak desk from, from the third floor. Uh, but he keeps saying this word, young bucks, as if these moves haven't aged my back by about 40 years uh, over the span of, of the past 10 months. So expectedly, coming into ministry, uh, it has had its way of maturing me, like people had always told me it would and warned me that it would. It just hasn't been in the way that I expected because it's, it's been my back mostly, mostly my back and, and being sore uh, over the, the span of the past 10 months. But you see, I've just highlighted only two reasons that I am so proud of my church family because I'm deeply moved and passionate about the people that I associate myself with. What does it mean when I say that, though? I'm proud, and I'm deeply moved by these people. What does it mean for you when you take pride in something? Surely when you think of the things you are proud of, you, you, you tend to think of your accomplishments, or, or you'll think about, perhaps if you're a parent, you'll think about your children. You see, each of us have things in our own lives that we're deeply proud of and passionate about, uh, the things that we've done, the things that we're involved in now. Uh, the people that we associate ourselves with. I am tremendously proud uh, of, of so many of you for the, for the things that I've seen in the past uh, span of, of 10 months, the past few months, the past few weeks, and the ways that I've seen lives changed. And that's uh, all thanks to, to the amount of effort that I see from my own church congregation. But as I was saying, there's, there's things that each of us are proud of and each, and each of us are passionate about. And when you think of these things, you often realize that you make yourself involved with them and that you talk about them for seemingly hours on end. And for me, just being honest, uh, I would say that one of the things that I'm most proud and passionate about is sports. Not just sports, uh, in that I, I used to play and I, I watch it professionally, but I find myself in, in my passion bantering quite often about, about sports and uh, specifically, if you get me onto the topic of, of the Toronto Maple Leafs, I could talk about it for hours. Uh, more recently, it's, it's been less pleasant, uh, the way that we've had to talk about our team, just because of recent events. But even still, after all of this heartbreak, we talk about it for hours on end. And if you don't believe me, just ask my wife, right? Because so many family dinners have been completely hijacked by conversations that go on for hours uh, about our sports team. You see, when you are proud and passionate about something, when the topic comes up, it is impossible for you to shut up about it. You can't cease to, to talk about something that you're incredibly proud and passionate about. Uh, and so looking at your own life, when you begin to see how you return to these things and how much joy and satisfaction you get from being involved, uh, in those things, you, you can't just cease to be involved in it. You have to talk about it. You have to, to you find ways to just uh, steer a conversation towards it. When you take pride in something, you can't stop talking about it. So what does that mean for me as a believer? Shouldn't I never shut up about my God? Am I more passionate about the dumpster fire of an organization that are the Toronto Maple Leafs than I am about God? Because I talk about the Leafs way more. 
in my day-to-day life. You see, after all, this leads me to my sermon topic for today, which I have entitled, Not Ashamed. If you're joining us live, uh, thank you for joining us. But if, if you've clicked on this YouTube uh, link, then you know that that's the title of this, this sermon and what you're going to hear about today. Uh, you see in Romans 16, we're talking about this idea, sorry, Romans 1, 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Am I ashamed of the gospel? I don't talk about it with my coworkers nearly as much as I talk about the lockdown or about the big game last night. Why is that? In fact, we as Christians have become so conditioned to avoid taking a hard stance or even mentioning our faith for fear of being ostracized because of our love of Christ. Why is that? Why is that? It's because we live in a time of religious pluralism, in an in a era where there are so many misconceptions and mischaracterizations of the church and what we are and what we hold fast to. We live in a world that is growing increasingly relativistic as truth is being more and more obscured. And it concerns me. But I've just given you some, some very uh, deep and complex terms that you may have heard, you may not have heard, uh, but you may not know exactly what they mean. You see, these terms sound complicated, and, and you may not know what they mean, but you undoubtedly have seen them uh, in the influence in our culture all around you even. You see, first I mentioned religious pluralism, which if you break down each word, you, you probably have an understanding of what it means. It's, but at the very heart of it is there's this idea of acceptance and tolerance for others, which both sound like beautiful messages uh, of, of caring for one another and accepting one another for who they are. Uh, and and it, you see it all throughout our world today is, is people who, who are telling us that we need to accept others and, and welcome them uh, for, for who they are and, and what they believe in, and that we need to be tolerant uh, and care for them in spite of our differences, which is absolutely true. But I do get concerned when I hear that we as believers need to accept that another person's belief is as valid as ours. Not to say that their uh, capability of making a decision is, is, is less significant or, or important, but we as believers who hold fast to one truth, a universal truth that is for all, we need to begin to, to become more bold. We can't be ashamed of the gospel. You see, we're talking about relativistic truth in our generation, in our world today. You see, you may have heard this phrase, speaking your own truth, right? And this idea of relativistic truth means that truth can be relative from one person and, and not mean something for another person. I can, I can believe something and you can believe something. And what my duty is uh, in our generation today is to just accept that, that you can uh, uh, believe something that I believe to be completely false and untrue. And that's more loving for me to do that. That's what our world would tell us. That it's so loving for us to allow somebody to believe a lie. Simply because we do not want to confront. We do not want to become problematic. It's challenging. And so... Let's look to, to history, because if this is something that is brand new to our generation, let's look at how old generations were and see if that's something that we should aspire to. You see, when we talk about the history of this idea of truth and religion, we see that hi throughout history, wars are fought, and people die in the name of their faith. 
rather than standing or stating that there is the possibility that there could be more than one God. When we look to scripture, we see that many Christians die for their faith because they refuse to bow a knee to another God. They refuse to bow their knee to another idol or a statue or, or to their king who claims that he is deified. We serve one God and we bend our knee to only one. But now, if we begin to do that and take that same stance, we're deemed hateful or problematic for believing that, you know, you believe in one true God and that through that line of reasoning, the other's people are trading the truth for a lie. Because if you don't affirm the validity of their belief, you are attacking them. But is that true? So let's look back, because it doesn't only have to be throughout history, right? When we talk about ancient Israel, when we talk about uh, moving forward from there, what the church did uh, with, with crusades to, to uh, protect the truth and to, to move forward and, and claim ground for God. I don't think that's the right way about going about it. You see, the knee-jerk of reactions, even recently, when we talk about the evangelical movement in the past, has been to correct those who were misguided in their beliefs with a sense of urgency. And these two very common phrases were coined. When we talk about defending the faith and making an argument for Christ. And while I would never claim that there is no value in defending your faith in many instances, I believe that throughout history, Christians have become perhaps slightly misguided in their efforts. You see, this isn't what scripture tells us to do. Let's look to scripture. What does scripture tell us to do? In Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? In a spirit of gentleness. You see, when I read this verse, I often think of people in the church who are caught in sin. Right? That's when I think transgression, sin. And if they're caught in that sin, then I need to restore him and correct him in a spirit of gentleness. But is that the only form of transgression that two can have between themselves? Is that one sees that there's sin in another's life and that that needs to be corrected by me? And how do I go about doing that? I, I find that more often than not, my transgressions against other people can be found in disputes and disagreements about what truth actually are. You see, if I were to apply this to my own self, I would, I would look to my younger self. You see, when I was a high schooler, uh, in, in my senior years, I began to take hold of my faith a lot more firmly than I used to. And so what I thought I had to do was to defend the faith. And so I began to try to fervently argue with, with my classmates, with my friends, with people who were around me by telling them that what they believe is wrong and I would come with the spirit of confrontation rather than a spirit of gentleness. You see, I would come with confrontation instead of gentleness and love. But does that mean that I was misguided in my attempt to lead them to Christ? You see, what I knew then was that they believed in other things such as science or other religions. Which were leading them astray. So were my efforts misguided? No. But my spirit certainly was. See, it is important that we do share the truth of the gospel. That's what this passage is telling us in Romans 1.16. It's important that we share the truth of the gospel, but we must do so in wisdom. And we must be intentional in our approach. You see, before, at the beginning of this sermon, I began to talk about this idea of religious pluralism and relativistic truth. I'm touching on these really big subjects that have only emerged in the past generation or so, the past couple generations. 
already it's becoming rampant in our world today, meaning that it is something that we as believers are going to have to begin to deal with for potentially the first time in all of history. Something that's remarkable. We get to set the precedent for what it means to stand upon truth in a time of relativistic truth, religious pluralism. We live in a postmodern society where, where truth is obscured and truth can mean anything. It's what you perceive. See, in the past, people would die for their belief. And I'm not saying that necessarily that, that war is the way that we ought to go about doing it. In fact, I would, I would urge us, you know what? I'm going to make a hard stance. Let's avoid war. That's an easy stance to take. But then what's on the other side of that spectrum? Because we as believers have begun to roll over and say, your way is valid. Even when we know there's one gospel with the power to save. How do I know that? I just read it. I'm going to go through that passage in Romans 1, starting from verse 16. I'm going to draw out some of the, the points that I believe Paul is trying to make for us. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Who does that mean, everyone? First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And in this passage, we can actually very closely relate to what Paul is trying to say. Because while we are not Jew, we are Gentile, what we can actually very closely relate to in this passage is how he's talking about first for those who know and then who tho for those who don't know. Right? The Jewish people knew of God. They had a history with them. The Gentile were considered the godless in that time. So what does that make us in our time? Well, perhaps we can look at ourselves most closely with those who are Jewish and realize what we are doing to those who are ungodly to those who are without God, to those who are Gentiles in our society. Paul is trying to urge them in verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, if this is what we begin to realize the gospel is, how important is that message to us? How much pride do we take in that? How unashamed are we of this message if we know that we who are the righteous will live by faith let me catch you on that because we, re we read this and we, we are so encouraged by it because we know that that we are like the jewish people who know god but what is this passage telling us that the righteous will live by their own merit that the righteous will live abstract of sin no it says that we will live by faith what is your claim to because my claim is to Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not about what other people believe. It's not about the sin that other people might find themselves in. To me, it's about faith. To me, it's about believing that the, the truth of the gospel is something that I can take pride in. It's something that needs to be shared. I'll go on because what happens if we don't? What happens if we don't take pride in it? What happens if we become ashamed? It says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Every time I read this, this passage or any passage in scripture that would talk about wickedness, where, where does your mind go? Because for me, my mind always went to the, the most wicked, vile, horrible people in our societies who, who do truly, profoundly evil things. 
But I don't think that's what Paul is trying to get at in this passage. You see, of course, it does cover those people as well, but what I think he means by wickedness is sinfulness, right? And what he's saying is he's, he's talking about godlessness and wickedness in a way that, that is the wrath of God is being revealed against them, which is not something that's supposed to make you feel as though, yeah, good, good, they deserve to be punished because they're godless and wicked. What he's trying to say is that there are people out there who are godless, that are, are, are struggling and dealing with the wickedness that is, that is sin, that is destroying their own lives, and the wrath is coming against them. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? They suppress the truth because they live in sin. They live in their wickedness. But it carries on into verse 19. It says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now when I read this passage, it's very easy for me to look at it and say, oh, okay, so they're without excuse. The onus is on them. They can see God in, in creation the same as you and I. It's, it says so right here. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, his invisible qualities are all throughout creation. When you look around you, you should see and know that God is. But for me, that's not good enough. Because he's also given me a task. He's also given me a duty. As a believer, as a church, as a congregation, what are we going to do about it? There are people out there who are godless, that are struggling with wickedness. Who are those people? They were us. They were us before we, we did what? We made a claim to it, as it says in verse 17. The righteous will live by faith, not by our own merit. It's not you or I that, get, that make ourselves unlike the, the, the godless and the wicked. It's Jesus. It's the sacrifice he made for us. That's something I'm proud of. That's something that I take deep passion in and so is it enough for me to say that they can see it in creation or how much do I care how much pride do I have in, in my God and, and what he's done in order to be able to share it with others you see in verse 21 it says for although they knew God they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but their thinking their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And I've highlighted verse 22 for myself because I recognize what this passage is saying to us in our own generation. It's saying something that was very similar to what Paul was trying to share. You see, although people know that there is a God, they see him throughout all creation, they see the church, but what do they do? In their thinking, they become futile, and in their foolish hearts, they are darkened. Because they claim to be wise, but they are fools. Right? What does that remind you of? What's, what have I been talking about this morning when I speak of relative truth? I can claim to know truth because it's what is truth to me. And so I become this enlightened person who, who recognizes that truth can, can mean one thing for me and one thing for another and, an, and another thing for a completely different person. That truth is so relative that, that each of us are becoming enlightened by beginning to realize that truth can mean anything. That's foolish. 
It's foolish when you consider what the message of truth is, that there's a universal truth, that there is one God who desires to love them and care for them and bless them and, and take away this wickedness, take away this godlessness that is destroying their own lives. And by claiming to be wise, they're becoming fools because they're trading the truth for a lie. We're going to read about that uh, in this very passage. In verse 23, he goes on, he says, And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. I believe in our world today, we're beginning to see more and more of this. Not in statues, not in idols like they had in ancient Israel, but we've become this cult of man. That, that we are glorifying ourselves by saying that our truth is, is more important than God's truth. That, that our desire to, to be loving and caring for one another means that we have to accept that their own truth is more significant than the truth of God. And so they place themselves on a pedestal above him because they can't let go of what's in their own heart. They can't let go of what's in their darkened hearts. They can't let go of their flesh. We'll continue into verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And this is a verse I, I, I often return to in verse 25. It says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. You want to talk about trading the truth for a lie? They were doing it back in Rome. How about today? Trading the truth for a lie. Religious pluralism. How did I define it? Acceptance and tolerance for others' beliefs, no matter how much we may believe that they are incorrect. Is that not trading truth for lie? Relativistic truth. Speaking your own truth. That truth can mean one thing for one and, and something completely different for another. We talk about mischaracterizations of the church. This is what we've been led to. That people tell me that my congregation don't love, they're hateful. Who have they hated? Who has my congregation hated? Who have my brothers and sisters hated? I see them move somebody on Tuesday. I see them feed the hungry on, on Wednesday. But then on Thursday, they're going out and, and spewing hateful messages that they don't care for you, that they don't love you. That's not my brother. That's not my congregation. The world would tell me that my pastor doesn't accept that he condemns. Who has he condemned? When have you heard him sp share a message on a Sunday morning saying that he doesn't love you? That he doesn't accept you for who you are? That, that he doesn't want you to come into our church congregation? That he doesn't care about you? That he doesn't desire to, to do incredible acts of love? I promise you that there is a different truth. That there is one truth. Why am I bringing all of this up? Why do I feel like this is the word that God is giving in season? Something that's so uncomfortable and, and, and at times can feel almost confrontational. See, I'm preaching because I, I truly believe that there will come a day when we as believers are confronted with the reality of your faith and what truth is. Whether it be a friend or a professor at your high school or your college, or a coworker who asks you to affirm their lifestyle or system of belief, they want you to tell them that it's just as good as the truth of the gospel, but you can't. 
that will require you on that day to stand upon the word of the Lord, which says that we have to correct those who are living contrary to the gospel. But how did it tell us to do so? In a spirit of gentleness. We do so in love and grace. See, I don't want to preach this and make you feel like I'm telling you to go on the ninth crusade. I'm not telling you to go to your high schools or your workplaces and start confronting every Muslim or, or every atheist or every gay or lesbian person that you meet, every friend that you have who is leading a, a sinful lifestyle. I'm not telling you to go and confront them and to tell them that they are less than, that the way that they're living is destroying them. That's true. But that's not the message of the gospel that you received, was it? What you need to be is prepared to tell them that you have hope in Jesus Christ. That the joy and message of salvation that you are so proud of is readily available to them. You can't be ashamed of that. If you care deeply for them, you will do so. Otherwise, you're allowing them to continue in sin. And as I was writing this, pass, or this, this message, when I got to this point, I, I began to think of my own father, uh, whom I love very much. My dad used to say, though, that whenever he would discipline me or be strict with me, he had to remind me also that he was doing it because he cares about me, right? It's not always easy. It's not always fun. It's confrontational at times. How much easier would it have been for my dad to be my friend or to neglect the things that he saw and not correct me? Because I promise you it was not easy for him. But he knew what was best for me. He, he knew and he considered the things that were better for me when he was disciplining me. He wouldn't continue to let me act wrongly because if he didn't care, then I wouldn't have developed any character. You see, because he was caring enough to discipline me, I began to develop character. I began to work diligent, diligently in school or my work. I didn't always love it. I didn't always enjoy it. I'll be honest. But because he desired better for me, he lovingly disciplined me so that I would eventually dis develop discipline for myself. It wasn't always fun. It wasn't always the, the, the best way for him uh, to, to make a friend out of me. But he loved me. I promise you he loved me and he cared for me. And I'm a better man now for it. And in the same way, what does that leave for us as believers? What do we tell them? What do we do? How can we begin to, to share this message that, that God loves them but not their sin? How do we do that? We tell them the simple gospel as we do with anyone. We tell them that God loves them and that when they're ready to explore making a decision for Christ, that you will lovingly and graciously accept them into our church. Invite them out to our church, into our congregation or give them a Bible, or tell them to pray and ask God to reveal themselves to him. You answer the questions that they have about scripture as best you can, and you just demonstrate a general uh, love for them, because the more that you show that you do care, the more it cuts away at this wrongful misconception that you, you hate them, that we are prejudiced against a certain people doesn't re always require us to confront sin. That's what we need to begin to realize as, as believers. What we've talked about this morning is being ashamed, unashamed of the gospel, which is contrary to the flesh and sinful living, 
But we need to recognize what it is that the gospel does and how it works in each of us. Let me ask you a question. Did you turn from sin the moment you gave your life to Christ? Did you live perfectly? In fact, each and every single day that you live now as a Christian, does your pastor call you up and remind you of your shortcomings and what sin is in your life separating you from Christ? No. No, in fact, you, we allow God to work in you in the same way that we would allow God to work in somebody else. This is what we need to begin to take upon ourselves, that we recognize at times that correction needs to happen. Like iron sharpening iron, we make one another better, that we would discipline one another after the, the things of Christ, spiritual disciplines which are so much greater than the disciplines of this earth. The things that my dad did to discipline me made me a better man. But the things that Christ does makes me a better Christian. The things that Christ does and how he sharpens me and how the, my brothers and sisters around me sharpen me make me out to be a better person. But that wasn't the confrontational message of the gospel that I was given. No, we don't get a, a phone call from our pastor every single morning reminding us of our shortcomings. We're welcomed into our church. We're made a child of God when we did not earn it or deserve it. That is the message of the gospel, and I'm proud of it. What was demanded of you on the day that you became a Christian was that you accept Christ's sacrifice, which covers your sin, that you welcome him into your life, and that you will begin from that day forward living for him. And the work of sanctification began to work in you. Pastor Nathan shares this story with our young adults, and, and I have now begun to adopt it and bring it up quite often, about his friend who, when they became a Christian, smoked cigarettes, and nobody told her to stop. Nobody told her that she was living sinfully or that she needed to cut this bad habit because it was separating her, her from God. No, instead, Christ began to work in her. The Holy Spirit began to convict her and make her feel as though uh, this was something that she, she no longer needed. In fact, when she first was a Christian, she continued to smoke, but two years later, the very smell of smoke disgusted her. Did the pastor do that? Did any congregant do that? Did any Christian believer tell her that smoke would begin to disgust her because it was disgusting? No, she realized that for herself. That's the work of Christ in us. That's the sanctification that works in us. We as believers aren't told to stand upon uh, confrontation or to stand upon the merit of, of, of our own uh, ability to avoid sinfulness and godlessness and wickedness. Instead, we're told to seek God. We're told to follow Christ and to desire him deeply. What's demanded of us is that we accept Christ's sacrifice as anybody does. This is the gospel which has the power to save. It's not confrontational, but it is at times uncomfortable. But what it is definitely not is something to be ashamed of, which is the message that I hope you're receiving today. That we as believers need to begin to stop placing the onus of the gospel on unbelievers to receive Christ and for us to boldly begin sharing a message that we are not ashamed of. I'm going to say that again. Because it so closely lines up with what Paul is trying to tell us in Romans 1. We as believers need to stop placing the onus of the gospel on believers to receive Christ. And for us to begin boldly sharing a message that we are not ashamed of. What is Paul trying to tell us when he says that? Because he talks about how we can see Christ in creation and, and God in creation. 
But I don't think that's what he's saying because he, at the very beginning, said, do not be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power to save. So what is the onus? Why is the onus being placed upon the godless or the wicked? Take that yoke upon yourself. Be that person who will boldly proclaim truth. You see, this is what Paul is telling us. Paul is boldly declaring that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And in the same way that Paul sensed that some of the Christians who were in Rome were tempted to be ashamed of it. In the same way, I see a trend in, in my world that I'm not fond of. On both sides of being ashamed of the gospel. What do I mean when I say that? That I, I, I find that I'm not happy with the trend of, of what it means to be ashamed of the gospel, but on both sides. You see, on, on one side, I see those who are ashamed and refuse to uh, boldly pro proclaim the truth and stand upon truth in spite of what it means uh, to them. They won't say it because they're, they're fearful of a label, that they'll be considered hateful or, or, or bigots. Those are messages that I've heard about my church, but when I see them acting in love, when I see them caring for those who are in need, I don't see hatefulness, I don't see bigotry. When I look at the gospel message, I don't see hatefulness and I don't see bigotry. What I see is a message that actually hopes to receive you in spite of your insufficiencies and inadequacies. It's something that I've seen in each and every single believer, that they fall short and yet God calls them son or daughter. But then on the other side, we have all of these believers who do make that claim and they are not so unashamed of the gospel that they'll confront those who are in front of them and they'll tell them that they're sinful and disgusting and slimy and that their sin detracts from their ability to receive from God and that they have to deal with that before Christ will ever receive them. That's not the message of the gospel that I received. Jesus, when he came to the, the, the woman caught in adultery, did he say your sinfulness uh, has, has earned you a certain fate? No. What did he do? He told her that among your accusers, there's nobody left to cast stones that you might be put down for your sin. And neither does he, the one who can actually judge, neither does he condemn her for her sin. But he can't stand only upon that message of grace because what does he say? Now go and sin no more. In the same way, we can't be ashamed of the gospel, which is the power to save. We must have both grace and truth. You see, Paul saw this trend in, in, in ancient Rome that people were tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, but why were they ashamed? They were being persecuted. You see, back then, Christians were being put to death for their faith, for their unashamed, uh, bold uh, proclamation of what the gospel actually is. They were being put to death. What do you have to lose? What do we have to lose? See, it's one thing to believe the gospel, but it's another to take the risk of preaching it and sharing it with those who do not know Christ. If we hold fast to the message that the gospel message is nothing less than the power from God for everyone who believes it to be saved, then anyone, we must also believe this, that anyone and everyone who puts their faith in Christ and his death for the sin on the cross will be justified. I'll say that one more time. That we have to hold fast to this idea that anyone and everyone who puts their faith in Christ and his death for their sin 
on the cross will be justified and will be made right with God. They'll be welcomed into God's family. You see, I often say, and this is my favorite uh, thing that I have to remind myself of in order to keep this boldness inside of myself. That if I really believe what I say I believe, then my life should be reflected differently. I should be acting differently. If I really believe God is who he says he is, and I have made him that's the Savior and Lord in my life, then I recognize that everything on this side of eternity means nothing. The only thing that matters is the kingdom. Right? Why do I talk so much about the Toronto Maple Beliefs? Why do I talk so much about these other things? They're insignificant. They'll fall away. This world will disappear. It will fade like, like a flower here today and gone tomorrow. But what does not fade is the promise that we hold to in Christ Jesus. If I really believe that, then my life should look different. I should talk about strangers with God more. I, he should be the only thing I bring up. If this is all true, and just as Paul did, each of us have staked our life upon this message, this gospel message. So what there is then to be ashamed of? I'll close with this story about um, my, my young high school self, because I've, I've shared with you uh, how I used to be very confrontational in the way that I would try to argue people into faith, which just never works. People can't be argued into faith. It's a decision they have to make for themselves. But if that was me at one point in my life, when I was much younger, I, I, I found myself on the other side of the spectrum of being ashamed of the gospel. You see, I, I in my very early young high school years, had not yet made Christ my identity. I was still seeking an identity, though I did believe in Jesus. So what I did when I first got to high school is I did exactly like I told you. I'm proud and I'm passionate about sports, and so I joined my high school's volleyball team, and these people around me are the men that I made my brothers. And yet these people who I made my brothers were not like me. We shared in a pride and we shared in a passion, but we did not share in our message or our hope for eternity. They were people who spoke in, in vulgar manner. Uh, they, they, they did things that, that did not uplift and, and uphold the message that God had put in my heart, the truth that I held to. And so what did I do? I had a decision to make. Do I stand upon the message of Christ or do I conform to society? And, and, and quiet myself for fear of being judged or, or for fear that I, 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 I was ashamed of, of the gospel message. And so I made the wrong decision and I began to become like them. I spoke the way they did and I acted the way they did. And it made me feel terrible. I left, I led this double life and there was this double-mindedness where in one hand I cared about God and I cared about this message of salvation that he had given me. And then in the other hand, I went into the world and I was like them. What was there for me to be ashamed of? The more I began to, to go down that downward spiral towards uh, becoming like the world and living in my flesh, the more I began to realize that it made me feel vile. It made me feel terrible because I knew the message of, of Christ, right? It doesn't make them feel vile because they're godless. They're, 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 this wickedness that we spoke of, 
It's because they, they don't have an understanding or, or, or a, a hold, they don't hold fast to this message of the gospel. They may have some understanding of it, but they don't make any claim to it. And so it doesn't make them feel any conviction because there's no spirit in their heart to convict them yet. But I was convicted. You see, I began to ask myself, why don't I stand upon the promise that God has given me? And I began to realize it's because I was afraid and I was ashamed that they would not accept me for my beliefs. And I wanted to be accepted. But who would I rather be accepted by? My friends or my God? And that's a question each of us have to ask ourselves. So I began to, to think about this idea that if my friends didn't accept me for what my beliefs were, then they didn't care about me. But then I had to turn that on its head and place the onus upon myself because I made myself like the world. I thought like they did. If they don't accept me for my beliefs, then they don't care about me. But what I actually began to realize is that I as a believer hold fast to one truth, not a relative one, the one truth that was true for me and therefore true for them. And the more I began to realize that is that it wasn't them who didn't care about me. It was me who didn't care about them. You see, how much more do I not care about my brothers, these so-called men that I called my brothers, if I don't care enough about them to share the love of Christ with them? I'm allowing them to perish in hell because I'm too ashamed to share the message of the truth? That doesn't say something about them. That says something about me. That I place the onus upon people who are godless. That I place the onus upon people who are wicked because they do not yet have a, an understanding of what it means to be saved of what it means to hold fast to one truth that brings hope and joy and meaning and purpose and it was making me feel terrible uh, not not living in it how how much more would it make me feel terrible if I knew that all of those guys that I cared so much about spent the rest of their eternity in hell and that doesn't just apply to me look around you who are your co-workers who are your family members your friends I'll close with this benediction. We as believers need to go into our own life and look for opportunities daily, daily to be bold. Not weekly, not monthly. That each day you rise your head, be attentive, be aware of what God is calling you to in that moment. Be unashamed of the gospel, so unashamed that it, it's worn on your sleeve. It is, it is who you are. It is your entire identity. That we need to become unashamed, so unashamed, that we boldly and unashamedly share the gospel with our neighbor, with our co-workers, with our brothers or sisters, or any loved ones that we have. After all, we know that the one truth is this message of grace, that the gospel has the power to save. But it's not just grace, it's also truth. This message, all it requires for us is that we make a decision that we make a decision at some point in our lives to turn away from, from our old life and just focus solely on Christ. And in that moment, all of these other lifestyle choices or things that you've been living in, they fall away. Do not think about the message of, of uh, these, these hateful Christians who tell you that you don't belong because that's not the message that Christ is telling you. He's saying, come, take my yoke upon you. Be ready to admit and, and to accept this thing that you feel in this heart, this tugging towards Christ and make a decision for him.
You see, all it requires is the decision. All you have to do is come to church. All you have to do is read your Bible or pray that Christ will reveal himself to you. It's very simple. That's your first step. Don't consider every other step. In this moment, what you need to understand is that the message of grace is for you. Pray that Christ will reveal himself to you, and I promise you he will. Now, for us as believers, we also have to accept that to be the truth for us as well, that we need to share that message. We don't need to consider the sin. We don't need to consider the, the lifestyle choices that they have. What we need to consider is, is that message of, of the gospel, which is available for all, for everyone, anyone. That person that you think is, is too far gone, that person whose lifestyle choices are, are too uh, opposed to what the message of the cross is, I promise you it isn't, because Christ told us that he died for all. God will take care of the sin in their life, first by forgiving them of it, and next by sanctifying them. He will bring the conviction. All we have to do is love enough to share the truth and the grace of the gospel, because we hold fast to it, knowing that it is the power to save. And so I'm going to lead us now in a, in a prayer. Um, we call this the sinner's prayer. And for those who have been listening and have begun to recognize that the message of the gospel isn't hateful, but it is actually loving. It is for you. It's not confrontational and it has nothing to do with, with your current life. It has everything to do with the life that you're going to have. Everything to do with the promises that God has given to you. And so we'll pray together. Uh, I'll just pray, and, and as we do, uh, I, I will speak a sentence, I will pray a sentence to God, and you just repeat after me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your sacrifice. I know that you died on the cross, that you were buried, and that you were resurrected. Lord, I pray that you would accept me into your home, that you would accept me into your family. I pray that you would love me in the way that I now desire to love you. I pray that you will forgive me of my sin and lead me toward a life that is glorifying to you. And that all the days of my life, I will hold fast to the message of the gospel which is the power to save. Amen. Amen. Hey, Lighthouse family. Thanks so much for tuning in to another one of our podcast sermons. I'm Pastor Joel Sloss. For more podcasts, media, and live stream services at lighthouseniagara.com, Sundays at 10 o'clock. God bless.